Hello and welcome to the Line by Line podcast. It's very simple. Two guests look closely at three pieces of writing and we talk about them. It's a podcast about how the words a writer chooses and the exact order in which they place them really matter. Good writers learn that the hard way by rewriting and rewriting, and that's why they usually make the most vigilant readers. Our guests today are two novelists. The first is Naomi Alderman, author, among other books, of Disobedience and the Power, which won the 2017 Bailey's Prize for Fiction. And the other is Philip Henshaw, who appeared as one of Granter's best of young British novelists in 2003 and repaid that vote of confidence by going on to become one of our best of middle-aged British novelists. He's twice been nominated for the Booker Prize, and his most recent novel is A Small Revolution in Germany. They are both professors of creative writing at Bath Spa University. The guests get the texts we're going to talk about in advance, but they get them blind, and that's initially how we'll talk about them. For anyone who doesn't recognise the writers of our extracts, I'll reveal the authors a little way into our discussion. It's not a trick, this just a way of avoiding the distraction of reputation, for a time at least. Our readings are themed, and this week the theme is old age. And our first passage is this, from a 1971 novel. A young man has invited an elderly lady for supper. He opened the door to her and took her coat and complimented her upon her string of pearls as if he could not think of anything else to say. To her disappointment, there was suddenly an air of constraint between them. She touched the pearls from nervousness, went over to the gas fire and chafed her hands, though she was not cold. He watched her. Veins the colour of pewter branched over the back of those transparent hands. He took in every detail of her while she bent there before the fire. Her heavy rings, the neatly pleated handkerchief tucked in her cuff, folds of skin about her jowl hanging loose. She had taken age as it came, and it had come apace. She felt him looking at her, and straightened her back, with a creaking, uneasy sound, like an old tree in a high wind. His gaze at once slithered away, and he began to touch things on the table, rearranging what he had already set out. Plates. There was nowhere to warm them, she realised, save on the floor before the gas fire. Odd knives and forks. Two Kleenex tissues for napkins. He had gone to some thought and trouble, had perhaps become a little fussed. There was also a half bottle of Mateus Rose, one glass and a yoghurt carton in place of the second. There was no time to get the silver from the bank, he said, standing back and surveying the table. This is fun for me, she said. But is it? she wondered. Having said the words, she dared not dwell on them. Philip, I'm going to come to you first. Don't say who this is. I'm absolutely certain that you know who it is, this writer, unless you're very forgetful. Because when I, after I'd picked it, I looked on the back of my copy <laughs> and there's an encomium from you about this writer in general. Um, uh, 
part of the context for this is that um, this is a sort of odd, it's an almost a mercenary relationship, this, between the young man and the old lady. And I think you get that the moment he complimented her upon her string of pearls as if he could not think of anything else to say. It's a great little touch, that, I think, at the very minute, at the very opening of this, yeah. this meeting. I, I think um, that it's also interesting that uh, the author presents that in indirect speech. He doesn't quote her directly. And there's something, um, there's something quite um, uh, removed from sincerity in the whole of this piece. Actually, if you look through it, nobody actually says anything they really mean. Um, at any point, um, I think that um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry that you um, that you actually identified the the date of it because I think that looking at this, one could date it very exactly from the choice of words, the curious spelling of yogurt, uh, y o g h o u r t. It hasn't quite settled yet. Kleenex. Matthias Rose. It's got to be late 1960s, 1970s. It's got a kind of conflict too uh, with the slightly more formal style of the writer. It's uh, she's she's more on the older woman side than on the younger one. She says dwell on them. She says chafe. She says complimented her upon. She says apace, and she means says save instead of accept. I think all these things indicate a sort of clash of cultures be, that was happening in the um, in the uh, late 60s, early 1970s. And it's done through the physical properties, the pearls, the handkerchief tucked in the cuff, the creaking uneasy sound, which might mean that she's wearing a corset. And on the other hand, there's a gas fire, there's odd knives and forks, there's Kleenex. It's funny that you say that about the tree. I was One of my questions was going to be whether we we really believe that that's an audible noise. Um, because it seems to me this passage is very good at, at drifting from one mind to another mind. It's in that f f sort of free and direct style. So you, you, as you say, you're never, it's never narrated by a particular person and you, you, you're aware of the ways these different characters are feeling. It's very but unusual. It to me... It's very unusual that to drift from, uh, character, from consciousness to consciousness in, from sentence to sentence. I think she's at, at um, I mean, since Henry James, we've been told that you ought to stick in one consciousness in a scene. And I think here she's doing it to, to present the two consciousnesses as equal. You've given away a little thing about the writer, but oh, Naomi, I don't know whether you, do you recognise this writer? Do you know well, where this is from? I, I, I have, I have worked it out, but I can tell you who I guessed when I first read it, which was not, I think, a bad guess. I guessed Elizabeth Bowen. And That's not a bad guess. Yes, I, th I thought all right, all right. When I when I when I when I went and was it, it out. was it those was it those social cues that Philip has mentioned that led you towards that? Yes, I think. I mean, obviously, Philip, that's a brilliant analysis, if I may say. Um, I think I was led, interestingly, in the passage to feel somewhat nervous for the woman in the passage. I think that there is a rather marvelous elision of purpose so that it seems unclear why she would be in this room at this moment and whether or not this man is um, wooing her, trying to seduce her in some way. It feels like a seductive scene between two young people. If they were both 22, then you would say, oh, well, he's invited a girlfriend over for supper. Um, so I'm very interested by the word slithered right in the middle there. Well, I was going to ask you about the word 
slithered. It's a highly judgmental word, slithered, isn't Certainly it? There's no it is. getting away from the fact. And the question slightly is, in whose mind is the judgment at that moment, whether it's her or the writer? Well, it's slippery. <laughs> it's, they, they both seem like, like slippery people. And that slithered really does make you think of serpents and Garden of Eden. And who is offering who a little bit of Matthias Rosé in the Garden of Eden? Uh, it feels, I mean, there's also a tree in, you know, in the sentence before. That feels like that is drawing our attention to the different kinds of seduction that can happen. Uh, and and uh, maybe we, f- we sl- feel slightly fearful for both of them. They're both being tempted. I think, the, I think verbs of movement are always interesting in an author. Um, the other verb of movement I would, uh, that I noticed um, is touch. And she uses it twice for uh, to mark a distinct displacement activity. She touches her pearls. Later on, he touches the things on the table. And it's uh, touching is an interesting word because it means, you know, to bring yourself into contact with something in a kind of completely ineffective way. You're not actually going to do anything to these things. I think that's um, um, I think that's a really kind of key moment. Um, I hadn't noticed, Philip, that the fact that they mirror each. I mean, I had noticed that that little those little gestures of displacement of anxiety, but I hadn't noticed that they mirror each other. That they both do one of those, and they both um, use the both, same word. Yes, and they're both ner- they're both nervous about it. Um, I'm going to say what it is. It's Elizabeth Taylor, uh, Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont, which is a novel about an old lady who essentially hires well I, perhaps i shouldn't say too much about it but uh, uh, i mean it's a it's a novel about the relationship between an old lady and a young man and and the process of growing old um just before we move on because i wanted to talk partly in in all of these passages about how you represent old age that um that description veins the color of pewter branched over the back of those transparent hands is on one level a a very simple description of what old hands look like but there is, of course, where every time you describe old age in a novel, there is something else going on, isn't there, Naomi? Yes, I, I think that's a it's a beautiful description. Um, it's it's drawing our attention as well to that that something about pewter feels old, and there's something incredibly touching and fragile about this description. I would also like to just take a look at the last sentence of that paragraph, which is so good. She had taken age as it came, and it had come apace. Who is... (laughs) Now, why do you like that so much? I like that very much as well, (laughs) but I want to know why you do. Well, I think, okay. so as a writer, I admire the rhythm and the form of that sentence. It has the feeling of an aphorism. It has the feeling of something that that lands with with great truth. There's a... there, there There are three different... Uh, four different A sounds in there, which just make it extremely melodious. Um, but it's also, it's funny and it's tough. It's tough. She's got old quickly, which is not as good as what uh, uh, Elizabeth Taylor says here. I like it. I like it very much because it's, um, it's witty and it's it's a particular item of rhetoric which um, if i had better memory i'd be able to tell you the name for which is what um, what you do when you use a verb in two different senses and the the phrase to take something as it comes 
um, doesn't actually mean to come, you know, you're, oh, you're going to have to take the garden as it comes, you know, you're going to have to, you know, cope with it, uh, however it is. But it has come, it's arrived from somewhere. And we don't really expect to, if you say, oh, she's taken ages, it come, comes, when we don't really expect the author to say immediately afterwards, yes, that's exactly what age does, it comes upon you. Um, I like in that the whisper of paradox. I think that both of those halves of the sentence contain that, I mean, we don't have a choice about whether to take age or not. You know, you have to take it, uh, though, of course, you have a choice about how you take it. And uh, it comes in the time that it comes. We don't have any choice about that. It can't really come faster than it comes. And yet, of course, we know that there's a truth that it falls on, upon some people suddenly. And I think the, the, that phrasing of it um, plays with both of those notions a little bit. Um, I'm conscious we're sort of moving on in time. So let us move on to the second reading, uh, which is much more famous than I expect people to get. That time of year thou mayst in me behold, when yellow leaves or none or few do hang, Upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs, where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day, as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away, death's second self that seals up all in rest. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire, that on the ashes of his youth doth lie, as the deathbed whereupon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. Okay, Naomi, uh, do you want to go first on this? Yes, can I talk about uh, bare ruined choirs? Uh, I think we could. You can talk about on... whatever you most want to talk about. Yeah. So, so the poet here, who I think we probably in this way feel that there are many, many uh, writers of uh, 16th century sonnets. I think we might be able to guess who that is that we have we are reading. Um, the poet here is uh, comparing himself to a tree. Uh, that time of year thou mayst in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold bare ruined choirs. He's inviting us, I think, to see him and his age as a cathedral, as a, uh, a monastery, perhaps. After all, uh, in the time that this poem came from, there had been a ruination of monasteries not too long ago probably the countryside was littered with bare ruined choirs so there is a sacrilege a destruction of something um that was extremely beautiful and uh, dedicated and holy uh, and yet also maybe a holiness remaining in the verse uh, and i think that that feeling the bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang uh, and then we pass on to the twilight of such day as after the sunset fadeth as after sunset fadeth in the west. There is a feeling of things that are fading away that were once 
extraordinary, but still have, in their passage, still have that holiness to them, I think, is what I see there. Um, it's interesting that you read that um, those lines upon those boughs which shake against the cold bare ruined choirs. You read them as though cold refers to bare ruined choirs. There is, of course, an ambiguity in the grammar. You could read it as upon those boughs which shake against the cold, semicolon, and then bare ruined choirs where late the late the sweet birds sing sang uh, might be an ancillary metaphor for the trees. Um, and both of those are possible. I don't know what you feel about that section, uh, Philip. Um, I, I think. I mean, what what do we what do we have to say left about this? There isn't this a sonnet, lot. really. Um, <laughs> I think that um, one of the things that um, that uh, that came upon me reading it properly for the first time in many years, um, I wondered. I started to think it's not quite so. Um, firm and classical and uh, a solid you know well-established meaning that one assumes and I think the moment I started to wonder was um, when he says the uh, death's uh, death second sense and he seems to be saying that death second sense is night death second self so, second self sorry I'm reading my, yeah. my notes second self is uh, is night now the, classically, death second self is sleep, not night. And I just start to think, you know, the you know the beloved youth presumably was a bit of a party goer. You know, he knows that perfectly well that you you know is not going out at night is not the same as death second self. Um, I started to think there's something a little bit overdone about the memento mori aspect. Um, I think there's, in a way, there's almost um, a kind of playfulness about this that uh, at the end, when in the final couplet, um, saying, um, uh, hang on, let me see, saying, um, uh, don't forget that uh, it's not just me that's uh, that's getting old and going to die, it's you too, you know, <laughs> you're going to have to leave that too before long, uh, 15th line of the sonnet, so you might as well go to bed with me. I think there is, I think there is a kind of underrated, playful aspect to this sonnet, and I think that what the first thing that signals it really is when he the second line he says, "When yellow leaves or none or few do hang," and it's the wrong it's the wrong order. It's like somebody you know um, rifling through his uh, rhetorical resources. You say it's... Do you know why? The reason I chose this passage is because of that line. I just absolutely adore that line. I, know, I think it's... Um, uh, and I don't know whether it's the wrong order because I think he's trying to get a flutter of indecision into that line. Yeah. It is. And it is, of course, about... He's not, he's not certain. I think it captures both an odd thing about trees, which is that they lose their leaves at different times of the year. You know, they all do it in autumn, but they all take a different length of time. But it is also that it's the fluttering of leaves on a bare tree where you can't count them because they sort of disappear and then they're there again and then they're not there. And it's brilliantly captured that, I think, in that line. And But... There's a carelessness to it, isn't there? There's a well, feeling it's of, the it's yeah. that idea that you know poetry must whatever it else it is be precise, and yet here is this brilliantly imprecise line, which sort of says it doesn't matter even how many leaves there were on the tree. Or yes, I, it's, it, it's jovial, actually. It's it's a it's somebody it's somebody thinking about their life, thinking, well, how much do I have left? Well, 
Maybe some, maybe none, maybe a little bit. <laughs> you can see, I am almost as good a poet as the writer here. <laughs> yeah, well, it, <laughs> is, a, it is, of course, it's Shakespeare. It's, um, it's Sonnet 73, and it's a kind of very famous uh, sonnet. But it, it, and it, and it's interesting that it takes these rather commonplace metaphors for old age, which is autumn, the dying of fires. I mean, I don't know how quite how conventional they were at the time. I think pretty conventional, even at the time of writing. There is a there is a there is a conventional metaphor um, there which I have never understood, which is um, in the twelfth line, consumed with that which it was nourished by. Is that about the party? The parties is that about the youth and the having been nourished by all of all of the fun times and then I think it's I think it's you it. pay you know you pay your, your debts for pleasure there's certainly that there but I don't but understand also, what what sense it has in well I think the, it's an absolute literal description of a fire that if you leave a fire alone it will eventually be stifled by its own ashes that the that it sits if you've ever looked smothers, at a coal yeah. fire if you don't poke it and rattle it up it eventually will smother with its own ashes and i think he brilliantly describes that there that's what's happening that it's sitting on a bed of its own its own consumed coals which is the same tree that you've got in line 2 the tree that's got almost no leaves by the yeah. end is the ashes in the bottom of the fire is on the fire yes. yeah, yeah. 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 No, he does. I also love in this sonnet the way that he um, it's a sort of trick. And I think I agree with you, Philip, that there is a sort of almost teasing, you know, sense of wit about it. But the the reversed doubled rhymes of perceive, perceived and leave and then the two loves that he reverses those in the, you know, one line and then the next line really ties that together in that aphoristic way you were talking about, you know, with the other the other uh, reading we were reading about. Yes, um, well, there's something... I mean, if we're talking about uh, the way that people write about old age, there's some hope that one can find those little aphoristic twists to say, ah, oh, this is this has made a hole. We have come back to the start. That's, there's, a, there's a settledness to that thought, maybe, which people reach for. I think the interesting thing about this as well is that it doesn't have any of that... It doesn't seem to me to have any... Um, it's very hard for writers to write about old age. We are all gerontophobic because we mm. all slightly fear getting old. And it doesn't matter, you know, that that we're at different times in our passage through life. We all have this dread. And this seems to me to avoid that. Whereas the, there is a bit of it in the first passage that looking at the veins on the back of a hand and, as it were, describing those pewter, but there's a slight sort of um, sense of recoil and there's nothing in this, it seems to me, that does that. It's a very kind of... Is it, uh, is it going to get me thrown off the critics' circle? If I admit... Have you not been thrown off already? Oh, yeah, yeah, there is that. But if I admit that I actually don't... I'm not crazy about Shakespeare's sonnets. Um, I mean, I, you know, it's just not the part of his work that I, I most love. And I think the thing that I that actually makes me slightly roll my eyes is that final couplet... And so often you read it and it's like kind of, um, so here we go. And I don't know, it's just too kind of, I like the sonnets. I know what you mean. I like the sonnets that don't Well, I know what you mean, but I would be very loath to lose the way that love 
turns into leave and goes through this uh, its own physical transformation in the in the course of a single line uh, from from this sort of rather youthful beautiful thing to the this rather melancholy idea of leaving i'll just anyway, i'll just say on. i'll just say to rescue myself that the the lyric the uh, the poetry of of shakespeare that i absolutely loved when i was a boy was venus and adonis oh, absolutely that's a, that's a whole other podcast, I think. Yeah. <laughs> okay, the last reading of all. Uh, and the context for this is, uh, is obviously a, a narrator uh, describing her own grandmother. And she was old. My grandmother was not a woman given to excesses of any kind, and so her ageing, as it became advanced, was rather astonishing. True, she was straight and brisk and bright when most of her friends had bobbling heads or blurred speech or had sunk into wheelchairs or beds. But in the last years she continued to settle and began to shrink. Her mouth bowed forward and her brow sloped back and her skull shone pink and speckled within a mere haze of hair which hovered about her head like the remembered shape of an altered thing. She looked as if the nimbus of humanity were fading away, and she were turning monkey. Tendrils grew from her eyebrows, and coarse white hairs sprouted on her lip and chin. When she put on an old dress, the bosom hung empty, and the hem swept the floor. Old hats fell down over her eyes. Sometimes she put her hand over her mouth and laughed her eyes closed and her shoulders shaking. In my earliest memories of her, my grandmother was already up in years. I remember sitting under the ironing board, which pulled down from the kitchen wall, while she ironed the parlour curtains and muttered Robin Adair. One veil after another fell down around me, starched and white and fragrant, and I had vague dreams of being hidden or cloistered, and watched the electric cord wag, and contemplated my grandmother's big black shoes, and her legs in their orangey-brown stockings, as contourless, as completely unshaped by muscle, as two thick bones. Even then she was old. So, Philip, did you recognise this one as well? No, I didn't. I didn't recognise okay. it. And, and did you like it? No. Or no? Um, well, I, I mean, that sounds too decisive about it. You know, anyway. The, um, the, sometimes it's the small things in a writer that seem very characteristic. And the thing that struck me quite, um, quite quickly after reading it uh, three or four times was she, I think it's a woman. I'm pretty sure it's a woman. I don't know why, mm-hmm. I think, but I think it's a woman. And she uses um, the word and uh, very, very regularly. Uh, she uses it about twice as much as Elizabeth Taylor does. And I, I think there's something sort of Southern Baptist or biblical in the background here. Um, she's not that interested in the world, the objective world. She's not that interested in telling, in, in important and telling 
properties. Um, the one that I think is uh, is good is when she's put on an old dress, the bosom hung, hung empty and the hem swept the floor. But I would have stopped after the bosom hung empty. I wouldn't have gone on to old fats, hats fell down over her eyes. I don't think that's very telling. It may, may of course, be telling about the character doing the I, describing. I think that's I mean, it. that's, that's the yeah. thing that's hard, hard yeah. to see out of context. I couldn't work out what the curtains were. And I think that Elizabeth Taylor would have been very kind of precise about that. Yeah. I mean, you think you think veil makes you think neck curtains, but then starched makes you think, do you starch neck curtains? I don't know, maybe. Um, Naomi, did you recognise this? Uh, I didn't exactly, but um, I, I tried to think and I had a few I had a few sort of guesses. I agree. It's, it's certainly an American writer. Um, and... Uh, I I can I can tell you a line which made me sort of go, um, which was uh, uh, the line that starts her mouth bowed forward and her brow sloped back. Okay, her skull shone pink and speckled within a mere haze of hair. Okay, which hovered about her shape uh, about her head like the remembered shape of an altered thing. Remembered shape of an altered thing is terrible, um, <laughs> but. Well, it's, yeah. it's exactly the kind of uh, thing that I would tell my students never to do, and I'm always very cross with myself and my own writing if I found that yeah. I find that I've reached for the word thing and then I come and look at it again. Like, what we? It's a first draft word, isn't it? It's a, it is a first draft word. It is a sort of a remem- remembered remembered shape of an altered thing. Yeah. Mm. Um, however, I do think that this is about the character who is narrating. So I, I looked at it and I thought, this is a writer who is trying to balance the desire to write beautifully with the desire to communicate a character's perhaps lack of the apt word. That is a tough thing to do, thing. Uh, I'll tell you who it is. It's Marilyn Robinson from Housekeeping. Yeah, yeah that is, yeah. Uh, yeah. And... And actually, the the reason I picked this is because I think you're right about that. Um, the remembered shape of an altered thing is slightly straining for effect, as is, I suppose, the nimbus of humanity. But it was just the arrival of that word monkey, um, mm. which stunned me when I read it first, because I, th- you know, harking back to that notion of of how you write about other people's bodies and how you write about other people's bodily conditions. It's so blunt and brutal, that word. And yet it mm. seems to me it is true to the way that young people think about old age before they get there. You know, that th- there is this sort of casual dismissal. Uh, Philip? I'm going to slightly pick on that, actually, because um, uh, I'm a great I'm a great monkey file. I love monkeys. I, <laughs> they, I, when I when I went to an, an Indian literary festival uh, once and they said oh one of the things you could do you could go out of town and go to the monkey temple i can't tell you how difficult it was to do anything else but you know i have to see them. monkeys look different they don't all look the same you know it, what what sort of monkey is she thinking of well i think she's i think she's talking about that kind of weird um it's the fact that you know on certain sort of aged chimpanzees you can, you know they you can see their skull pan you can see you can see the skull through the the hair on their head she should have she should have said chimpanzee she should have said chimpanzee chimpanzee would have been a very hard word to put in there because it would have been irretrievably comic wouldn't it if you'd put chimpanzee yes but that's that's her problem she doesn't have space in this style for the comic 
Well, it's she, she's yeah, she's such an interesting writer, Marilyn Robinson, because mm. housekeeping is sometimes a very, very dryly funny book, it seems to me. I mean, it's it's it's, you know, it's enormously serious and it's enormously theological, but it does seem to me to get at a comedy sometimes. And I would give her the credit for that there, that she knows what she's doing. There. But compare um, compare Elizabeth Taylor, who in, in Mrs. Palfrey and the Claremont was uh, forced by her publisher's lawyers to leave out the line that Mrs. Palfrey in evening dress looked like Lord Louis Mountbatten in drag. I mean, it's 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 brilliant. It's also funny, and I think that there's there is something about the writing here that wants to be great rather than precise. It's a very. It, I totally agree that it's a very self conscious style of writing. I think that Marilyn Robinson has. You know, it's not. It's not that. Um, uh, it's never striving for artlessness. It's striving for artfulness quite often. Um, yes, and I think when it when it does it, it does it well. It's it's brilliant. But sorry, uh, Naomi. No, no, no. I mean, there have been. You know, I have I have very much admired uh, some some of the books of, of Marilyn Robinson. I haven't actually read this one. Um, I do think this passage is lacking, perhaps in. A, it, it, it's lacking in a sense of feeling about the grandmother, actually. If, if a student were to present it to me, which I should be so lucky, but uh, <laughs> I, 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 would, I would probably say that I... But that's, you see, I think that's true to the character who is narrating right. this, is that she is alienated. She's a young woman and she is alienated from her grandmother and she is looking at her as though, as though she's a rather strange alien. And I think that this passage, it's, it has this odd tra- time-lapse effect. You know, with a line like she continued to settle and began to shrink. It's as as though all of these changes have been (laughs) compressed so that you see them happening in front of you, this dwindling. Um, And I think that's what the character is feeling at the time. But if I'm, if, you know, I I love this uh, approach to literature, if this this author were a student of mine. Shakespeare were a student of yours, Philip. Would you tell him to give up the sonnet? I tell, I tell him to. I tell him to give up that Pericles. I can tell him. Seriously, with this one, I think that she doesn't get as far as she could, or that the character narrating it could, by focusing only on the uh, the grandmother's physicality. I would say you're going to get a lot further by talking about what her grandmother has in her house, what the curtains mm. actually really look like. Um, what is sitting on top of her piano, who made the piano, uh, all those pedantic, realist, uh, solid things. In, de- in defence of, uh, of Marilyn Robinson, you do, get, you do get passages like that, and there is a rather a specific account of this house. We're going to run out of time. Just before we do, you don't have to answer this question if you can't think of something, but do you have other sort of benchmark writing about old age? Do you have passages that you particularly admire? It's a tough question to ask because you won't be able to think of it off the top of your head, perhaps. But oh God! Well, as we're talking about Shakespeare, we can talk briefly about Lear, can't we? That is yes, and we can talk about the 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 raging against the wind and link that in with raging against the dying of the light, that which I think is the opposite of what you of the passages you've chosen here. That that feeling of refusing to go down and holding on to the passions and the prejudices and the... We- I mean, that's what's so captivating about Lear. He brings all of his misfortune on himself, of course, because he refuses to let go of something. 
It's but very well, yeah. That, well, that is a sort of very familiar trope, isn't it? The raging against. I don't know. Uh, this I was reading these, and I was thinking of that Thomas Hardy poem where he looks into the glass. He says, "I look into my glass and view my wasting skin, and say, Would God it came to pass my heart had shrunk as thin." In other <laughs> words, he doesn't want the battle between the interior and the exterior anymore. I mean, it's a it's a conceit in the poem, but. That that is the conceit. That that's the terrible thing about it, getting old is that you are, you have that young person still inside you, going mad and saying, "I don't want this to happen." <laughs> Philip, do you have anything that particularly I do? Excite? I think the um, I I, th- I like um, I like writers who um, see how um, people's individual characters are exacerbated or revealed as time goes on, and the writer who I think. Um, writes so wonderfully about old ages, my favourite novelist, Ivy Compton Burnett. And as uh, she's got so many brilliantly um, observed, very old people, and their selfishness, their self-indulgence, their theatricality, their performance of old age often really emerges. And I think in the, in the last one she published in a lifetime, A God and His Gifts, it's so moving that there are these... Uh, these old people who have never really let go of their egotism brought up in the last pages against um, a two, three-year-olds having the most kind of a profound and wise conversation about a pencil. And it's as if they're, they're just on the verge of death starting to learn something. It is, uh, she writes extraordinarily about uh, about people in extreme old age. What was that novel again? The last, uh, the uh, uh, God and His Gifts. God and His Gifts. Um Anyway, thank you very much indeed, both of you. Um, thank you for, for doing Thank you, it's true. Yeah, and you. Yeah, it's okay. tremendous fun. Let's do it again. It's, it's extremely stimulating in an unstimulating year. Well, I hope you thought so too. That's it for this edition of Line by Line. Thanks again to Naomi Alderman and Philip Henshaw. Our next episode will feature the comedian and writer David Bedeal and the novelist Jill Hornby. If you don't want to miss it, subscribe now. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review. It helps to get the word out. If you didn't enjoy it, you don't have to bother, honestly. You can also contact me if you have comments or suggestions on Twitter. I'm at TDS153. Line by Line was produced by Ben Tullo, and the readings were by Delhi Siegel, and the music was by D. Yan Key. Until next time, goodbye.